Thank you. I'm very glad to be here today on behalf of the Richmond Times, Richmond Times Dispatch and to be able to introduce today's program. In 1853, Air Crow, a young British artist, visited a slave auction in Richmond and captured the scene in sketches that he later developed into a series of illustrations and paintings, including the culminating work, Slaves Waiting for Sale, Richmond, Virginia. In her new book, Mari McGinnis uses Crow's paintings to explore the trade in Richmond, Charleston, and New Orleans. Through that exploration, she describes the evolving iconography of abolitionist art and the role of visual culture in the transatlantic world of abolitionism. Our speaker, Dr. Mari D. McInnes, is a professor of art history and American studies at the University of Virginia and associate dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. Her scholarship focuses on the social and cultural history of art and material culture in the American South in the 18th and 19th centuries. She has published or edited four books, including the award-winning The Politics of Taste in Antebellum Charleston. She has curated exhibitions in museums and served on advisory committees for historic sites, including the Gibbs Museum of Art in Charleston, Monticello, and Montpelier. In 2014, she will guest curate an exhibit at the Library of Virginia and the, uh, on the American slave trade. Today's lecture is drawn from her latest book, Slaves Waiting for Sale, Abolitionist Art and the American Slave Trade, which is on sale in the museum shop. Please join me in welcoming Mari McInnes, who will speak to us today about abolitionist art and the American slave trade. Well, good afternoon, and thank you so much for coming out Whenever you are faced with a public lecture, there are always many things to be nervous about. One is, of course, tripping on the stairs as you're coming up. Uh, for me today, it was spilling anything on the white suit at lunch. Um, and the third for me today was that I have in the audience um, one of those professors who profoundly changed my life, um, Dr. Ed Ayers. Um, I'm getting a little choked up here. Um, I was an undergraduate in one of his classes at the University of Virginia, um, only a couple years ago, of course. And um, I, had, I was a young child of the South, and I had really never heard much about slavery, because of course I had gone to school in the early 70s, and it was not something ever mentioned. And when I took his history of the American 19th century South, my eyes were opened up into an entirely new world that I knew nothing about. And as I went to graduate school at Yale, my studies turned in many ways to wanting to talk about and understand the history of the South through the cultural artifacts, through the art and material culture of that world. Um, and ever since, that's what my career has been about. Um, so today, I'm going to talk with you about some things in the collections of the Virginia Historical Society um, and hope to put this particular painting um, into a new context for all of you. For in the collections here is a really remarkable work. Not very large, really little more than a foot wide. It has, since it came into the collections in 1991, regularly hung in the story of Virginia and appeared in numerous exhibitions. While familiar, therefore, to many of you, 
the history it reveals and the messages it's, it conveys may be less so. It was created by a British artist called Lefebvre James Cranston, who visited America, including a trip to Richmond in March 1860. Along the way, he made hundreds of landscape sketches, several, several of which the Historical Society also owns, and later created this painting of a slave auction, exhibited in 1863 at the Society of British Artists. It stands out as a very unusual painting in Cranston's work, and it likely relates to a series of images created by another British artist named Eric Crow. Cranston would have known Crow's work through either their exhibitions or through the articles and images that he exhibited in the Illustrated London News. Indeed, it is through those publications that we know so much about Crow's impressions of slavery in America. The culminating work of his series on the slave trade stands as the title work of my book. And in order to understand Cranston's image more fully, we need to situate it within Crow's and understand what each of them would have seen and experienced when they visited Richmond's slave auctions. Crow's painting, Slave Waiting for Sale, Richmond, Virginia, was exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1861, opening just a few weeks after shots were fired at Fort Sumter. Critics were riveted by the painting's subject matter because the war in America was all the talk in London. One declared it the most important picture in the exhibition. Quite a high compliment for a young artist with little status at the time. The critics were particularly struck by what they saw as the verisimilitude of the painting because they knew that Crow was in a unique position to comment on slavery because he had visited America just a few years before. The sketches he made and the descriptions he left are unusually evocative and among only a few visual eyewitness records depicting the slave trade. His images helped his contemporaries then, and us today, to see the trade and thus slavery with fresh insight. Crow had traveled to America in 1852 and 1853 as the young secretary to the wildly famous satirist William Makepeace Thackeray, the author of Vanity Fair and many other novels who was on a six-month speaking tour. While in America, the young artist, who also supported himself as a journalist, purchased the first edition of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, the best-selling novel of the 19th century. He declared himself perfectly harrowed by its contents. Stowe's novel tells the life stories of a number of slaves, including the eponymous Uncle Tom and had such a significant impact in spreading anti-slavery awareness that President Lincoln supposedly said upon meeting her, so this is the little lady who started this great war. Now while Lincoln's words are likely apocryphal, there is no doubt that the novel had a major cultural impact. Crow, who knew little of slavery before traveling to America, became determined to learn what he could of American slavery, and especially of the slave trade that had been featured in Stowe's novel. When he arrived in Richmond, the first southern city he visited, he set out to witness a slave auction in order to see the slave trade that had become by the 1850s the focus of abolitionist ire. 
Richmond was a town of 30,000, nearly 45% of whom were African American. Crow lodged at the American Hotel, one of Richmond's leading establishments on the corner of Main and 11th Streets. It was located on the same plateau on which Thomas Jefferson's State Capitol Building was built, on the crest of Shaco Hill, just blocks south of Capitol Square. The image of the Capitol on the screen is one of Cranston's sketches from his 1860 trip, a great image of the building before the later addition of the front steps. You can see the dome of City Hall just through the trees on the left. On his first morning in Richmond, Crow sat alone at breakfast reading the local papers. He wrote that what most captured his attention were the advertisements, not of politics or entertainments, but as he later recalled, the announcements of slave sales. In the top right-hand corner of page three were announcements for auction sales, including advertisements for the sale of slaves. NB and CB Hill were agents for a trustee sale of Negroes, and at 10 o'clock they planned to sell three Negro men, 21, 26, and 30 years old. In another notice, a commissioner's sale of slaves, they wrote that they were going to sell seven or eight slaves, men, women, and children. These relatively small notices could have been lost in a sea of commercial announcements, yet they immediately jumped off the page at the young artist who had read about the trade in human flesh but could not fully comprehend it. Richmonders, looking at the same paper, would not have seen anything unusual because advertisements for slave auctions were commonplace and part of Richmond's routine commerce. So commonplace, in fact, that dealers regularly advertised in the city directories and printed up price lists, such as the one on the screen, in order to report on the current price in the Negro market, as the page informs us. In 1857, the editor of the Warrington Whig reported that the trade in Richmond amounted to more than four million annually. With an average selling price of, in that year, less than $1,000, it suggests that more than 4,000 slaves were sold each year. Historian Michael Tadman has estimated that more than 350,000 slaves left Virginia between 1820 and 1860, most through the interstate slave trade. Not knowing where the advertised sales were located, Crow was directed by a man who worked at the hotel. Crow later identified this street as Wall Street, which not only does not appear on any map of the city today, but is even hard to find on contemporary maps. It was then, as now, almost invisible as part of the public face of the city. It was a small street, really little more than an alley, a block long, maybe two blocks long, that ran along what would have been the path of 15th Street from Maine to Franklin. Despite its unassuming appearance, according to the Illustrated London News, it was by far the greatest object of curiosity to European visitors because it was here that entire armies of likely hands had issued forth and been sold southward to the plantations. Although the density of traders and sales rooms located here attracted the most notice from visitors, Wall Street was part of a much larger commercial district. Main Street was then the retail district, but Wall Street was at the center of what could be described as the slave trading district. 
There were numerous businesses in the area related to the trade. Jails where thousands of men and women and children were held before sale, rooms where they were sold, and other businesses that supplied the trade with necessary items, such as clothing stores that specifically supplied clothing in order to dress slaves for sale, in order to make them appear more attractive to potential buyers. But as with Wall Street itself, virtually no trace of this neighborhood can be found today. After the railroad cut through here in the 1870s and Interstate 95 bisected Richmond in the 1950s, not only the buildings but the topography of this landscape in this section of the city was forever dramatically altered. In Richmond, the slave trade was interwoven into the fabric of the city, close to the state's governmental center, its religious structures, and its retail district, yet simultaneously hidden away. With storefronts and signs to advertise their businesses, the slave trade participated in the modern urban commercial culture. Yet, tucked away on narrow alleyways that were removed from the regularity of the grid and often hard to access because of the steepness of the terrain, this district formed a shadow landscape, both of and removed from the city's urban plan. The nucleus of the slave trading district was concentrated in the same few city streets in the blocks mostly on the downward slope of Shaco Hill leading towards Shaco Creek. The hilly, rocky, and uneven character of this section of Richmond is quite evident in the 1865 photograph taken from Church Hill to the east. The capital itself dominates the highest point, and then the topography rather sharply drops off, leading down to the lowest point around 16th Street and the path of Shaco Creek. This area was often muddy and prone to flooding. This image shows how the area around the slave traders was made up of mostly plain, utilitarian and commercial buildings, where much of the land remained undeveloped because of the steep and uneven terrain. The seeming regularity and modernity that Crow would have encountered as he walked down Main Street, with all its new brick buildings with granite storefronts, would have served as a facade for the area that spread out to the north along the streets and alleyways, intersecting it at angles. Behind that neat and tidy retail face, which signals, signaled Richmond's participation in the larger American mercantile economy, was the dirty and odorous slave trading district. While only a few blocks from the refinement of Capitol Square, this area of Richmond was dominated by light industry, stables, and buildings associated with the slave trade. This muddy, uneven, and smelly section of the city would have been one of the least desirable, and an area where one only ventured if one had a reason to go there. The path of Crow's footsteps that morning can be largely reconstructed. Seated at breakfast at the American Hotel on March 3rd, 1853, he looked at the papers and saw the advertisement for N.B. and C.B. Hill's sale to take place that same day. Crow left the American Hotel, turned right down Main Street, the primary business thoroughfare, walked down the steep declivity just a few blocks to its intersection with Wall Street. He passed by the apothecary shop of Gaynor and Wood on the corner of Wall and Main Streets and the City Hotel on the other corner. And as he walked farther north on Wall Street, he entered the first sales room. 
He discovered that sales were announced by a red flag hanging outside the doorway, a flag he described as being blood red, a detail that both Crow and Cranston highlighted in their paintings. In Crow's version, he uses its red color to chromatically link each slave to their treatment as chattel property. From the red vest of the seated man, to the red bows around the necks of the women, to the red shoes of the little girl, each figure is stained by the fate embodied in that blood red flag. Journalist Charles Coffin, entering Charleston with federal troops in 1865, was also struck by the illustrative purposes of the red flag, that he took one hanging outside a Charleston slave market and sent it back to Boston. It is the one you see on the screen. Crow noted that after each sale was completed, the entire audience moved on to the next one. He was at first overwhelmed by the multiple sensory stimuli. His eyes swam, his pulse raced, and his olfactory nerves were assaulted. In the first two rooms, he merely observed the sales in progress. He later published the image slave auction at Richmond, Virginia, depicting the event he witnessed in that first room, likely the room, sales rooms of Pulliam and Davis. In the third room he entered, he was so struck by the sight of a group of slaves seated on benches before the sale that in what he described as a hardly justifiable fit of enthusiasm, he took out his pencil and paper to make a sketch of the scene. The resulting sketch made in that third room was slaves waiting to be sold. That room was most likely the auction rooms of N.B. and C.B. Hill. His sketching attracted considerable attention. Those around him took notice of what he was doing, and when bidding did not proceed on a particular slave, the dealer came over and inquired what he was doing. Crow replied, I don't feel bound to answer your questions. The dealer returned to his post, but as the buyers remain uninterested in the sale and engrossed in what Crow was doing, the dealer returned to the artist with what he described as ill-disguised rage and once again demanded to know what he was about. Crow replied, you can look for yourself, I am sketching. The dealer returned to the auction block, but the audience remained more absorbed in what Crow was doing than the sale. A third insistent question from the auctioneer compelled Crow to leave. He quickly departed, turned to the right, entered the second sales room, where he had been previously, and waited, wishing not to look as if he were flying away. As he left that building, however, he noticed the entire group headed by the dealer coming after him. He quickly turned, walked towards Main Street, and disappeared into the crowd. Crow was not the only outside chronicler of the day's events. A week afterward, the New York Daily Tribune published a letter from a New Yorker who told about the auctions he witnessed in Richmond. His letter recounted the events surrounding the controversy of an artist sketching, which clearly had caused quite a stir. In his telling, at least 20 men were watching over the artist's shoulder, and this New Yorker reports that they all seemed pleased with what he was doing, so long as the sketch was a mere outline. But as he began to finish up the picture and form his groups of figures, they began to see 
what he was about. The writer reported that they were, quote, all sure he was an abolitionist, and they all wanted to lend a foot to kick him. Crow noted that the atmosphere was particularly heated because everyone was at what he described a fever heat, owing to Mrs. Stowe's fiery denunciations in Uncle Tom's cabin. When the artist told Richmonders, friends, that they had made about his experiences, he was informed that it was a wonder he had not been lynched. Crow believed the incident was allowed to drop quietly owing to the timely intervention of friends who threw oil upon the troubled waters. We know much less about Cranstone's experience in Richmond, except that he found his way to the Richmond auction rooms much as Crow had. He wrote a letter to his local newspaper in England that he, quote, turned down a back street and saw a row of dirty-looking houses to the doors of which were posted red flags. This English Quaker, who clearly supported the political aims of abolitionism, wrote that it was in the auction rooms where the horrors of the system are most palpable to the eye. He acknowledged that no pen can adequately describe scenes so revolting, but he attempted to evoke the entirety of the scene in his painting. There was much about the slave auction, however, that neither Crow nor Cranston could fully represent due to the constraints of Victorian propriety. In written accounts of slave auctions, observers winced at how enslaved bodies were measured, evaluated, and assessed as commodities. In Crow's article that accompanied his slave auction at Richmond, he alluded to the common practice of lifting a woman's skirt while she was standing on the auction block by, by showing uh, the young help holding on to her skirt as if he is about to lift it and show off her legs and ankles. The event probably was similar to one described by a man who visited Dickinson and Company's Richmond sales room in 1852. In his private diary, the man wrote about the auction of a woman who looked permanently pensive and sad. He wrote that while she was on the block, he saw big tears fall slowly and imperceptibly down her cheeks. He assumed the reason for her tears was that she was modest and disdainful about the free examinations usually made of their legs. And as she jerked the dress out of the hand of the black man whose business it was to show them off. Even more suggestive are the ways that Cranstone represented the interactions between male purchasers and female slaves. The artist wrote about the yellow beauties he saw and described those as, quote, smooth of skin, supple of form, and full-chested. And he arrayed them across the foreground on the right-hand side of the painting. Intermingled among the women awaiting sale are a number of male purchasers. Although Cranston's painting is clothed in Victorian propriety, the gestures of these men as they stare at, touch, and fondle these women communicate the sexual desire that compelled many of the purchases of young slave women, referred to by traders and buyers as fancy girls. As one observer of an auction, as an auction in Richmond reported after a woman was examined, the brutal remarks 
and licentious looks was evidence enough. Most conspicuous in this regard is the grouping of one woman and two men standing near the right edge of the picture. One of the best dressed men in the group, who is probably meant to represent an individual buyer rather than a trader, reaches for the woman's bow around her neck, gingerly fonding it and thus her in the process. Like the young woman on the auction block, she is light-skinned, much more so than her seated counterparts. In both word and image, Cranston implies that her fate as a fancy girl for the planter appears inevitable. Cranston also captured the way that male slaves were frequently treated, as they were commonly taken to a room or behind a screen where their backs were examined. Sometimes men were asked to roll up their pants so that their legs could be examined. Other times they were asked to remove their shirts, and in other circumstances they were stripped. Cranston described how the men were placed behind a screen at the end of the room, quote, each surrounded by an eager crowd of purchaser, each slave being stripped to the waist. Artists rarely chose to reveal this practice, but both Crow and Cranston alluded to it in their images. Cranston's image included the screen at the back of the room, but blocked from our view is what happened behind that screen. Writers found it difficult to describe how degrading the process was, and thus they often hinted at its barbarities without elaborating on its details. Former slave John Brown wrote that he could not, for decency's sake, describe what dealers did. Defeated in trying to find words that adequately could describe the revulsion, he said instead, what passes behind the screen only those who have gone through the ordeal can tell. But God has recorded the wickedness that is done there, and punishment will assuredly fall upon the guilty. Slaves being sold in America had already lived in slavery, and traders and buyers wanted to determine whether they had scars from earlier whippings. In Crow's slave auction at Richmond, just to the right of the auction itself, an enslaved man is holding a brogue in one hand and stretching out his arm as if putting his shirt back on. Behind him stands a white man, presumably a trader or a buyer, who is gesturing towards the enslaved man's back. This motion is significant. As Crow noted, the value of a slave was diminished by the presence of scars, as they were interpreted by the buyers as evidence not of the cruelty of the former master, but of the restiveness of the slave. Slave traders themselves developed a range of descriptions to measure the evidence, not whipped, little whipped, considerably scarred by the whip. The Historical Society's whipping post is a particularly evocative reminder of the ubiquity of this cruel practice. Traders and buyers thought that they could read a slave's history and his character from the scars. Multiple incidents probably indicated a slave who had frequently run away, whereas old scars suggested a slave whose behavior had been modified through the application of the lash. Whereas slave traders looked at these scars as markers of the worth of individual slaves, Crow saw the backs of slaves as evidence of something much larger. 
ever attuned to the contradictions inherent in the contrast between American liberty and American slavery. Crow noted that, quote, a closer inspection reveals a world of scars and stripes, distributed with not so much regularity as in the flag of the Union. The visual and verbal correspondence in the stars and stripes of the country's flag and the scars and stripes of a slave's back was, however, a contrast too painful for the visual language of sentimentality to render. It wasn't until during the war that such painful evidence could be put into visual imagery. Union abolitionists in 1863 used one man's scarred back as powerful visual testimony to the cruelty of Southern slavery. First photographed and then turned into an illustration in Harper's Weekly Magazine and also produced as a carte de vite image. This image of the back of an escaped slave named Gordon became well known throughout the country. Physical abuse had long been a staple of anti-slavery materials, but the end result of such whippings had not been shown. The brutality of the Civil War made doing so not only possible, but perhaps necessary. In many towns throughout the South, auctions occurred near the courthouse or on a designated street corner, such as this scene Crow sketched in Charleston, South Carolina. In contrast, Richmond and other major trading centers like New Orleans had dozens of business locations dedicated to the trade. In Richmond, these dedicated auction rooms became an inadvertent but potent symbol of the slave trade. It was two auction rooms that visitors journeyed and about which they wrote. And yet, these rooms were only a thin slice of the slave trade. Crow described four different auction rooms on Wall Street, all located in the one block between Main Street and the intersection with Franklin. There were sales rooms in other locations as well, including in the basement of the Exchange and City Hotels and on the ground floor of the Oddfellows Hall on Franklin Street. Over the course of the antebellum period, dealers were scattered in dozens of locations throughout the city, but the main traders were always located and concentrated in those same few blocks around Wall Street. Crow and Cranston are among the few visual artists to visit a slave auction, and there are very few known photographs of buildings that served as auction rooms. This image, in the collections of the Historical Society, thus show a very important building, a building demolished before 1920 and labeled in the photograph, Slave Market, Richmond. Located on the corner of Franklin and Wall Street, according to the various insurance policies taken out on it over the years, it served as an auction room continuously throughout the 1850s. What stood out about the auction rooms in Richmond was that there was so little that stood out about them. They were, essentially, just like many other commercial structures in the city. The buildings were usually made of brick with large, undivided open rooms on the ground floor that allowed for the gathering of a lot of people, as many as 100 visitors reported. So how did thousands of slaves annually end up on the auction block in Richmond? In Crow's visit to Richmond, he did not see the first link in the chain of the slave trade. In the slave trading district, 
The, the sales rooms were near buildings referred to as Negro jails. In these buildings, dozens of men, women, and children were held until sold. They were sent there by individual owners or by dealers who traveled throughout the Virginia and Maryland countryside looking for slaves to buy. Even though the men and women incarcerated there had committed no crimes, the word aptly describes the penal nature of the places where slaves were confined until sale. Most of the jails were located near Wall Street. Several were on the streets and alleyways between Wall Street and the Exchange Hotel, including those of Hector Davis and Silas Amahandro. Others were a block north, further up Wall Street, including Richmond's most infamous slave pen known as Lumpkin's Jail. It consisted of four buildings, Robert Lumpkin's house, a boarding house where those selling or buying slaves could board at rates considerably less than in the leading hotels, a kitchen or tavern building, and a jail for housing slaves awaiting sale. The jail itself was very close to Shaco Creek, which ran through the back of Lumpkin's property, meaning that the area was muddy whenever it rained and probably damp all of the time. There were probably dozens of slaves at Lumpkin's at any one time, many having been collected in the countryside and sent to jail to be held until sale. Sometimes slaves were held for longer periods to wait for the market to improve. As one trader wrote to Dickinson, you may confine him in jail until they rise and get a good price for him. Recently, the location of Lumpkin's jail has been confirmed and the site excavated with support from City Council and Richmond's Slave Trail Commission. They have done so much to make known a history that has long been buried and denied. Throughout the city, they have erected signage to mark historic sites related to the trade, and they have generated discussions about the possibility of a museum in the vicinity of the Lumpkin, Lumpkin Jail site behind Richmond's Main Street train station. Crow was particularly attuned to atmospheric details. Having seen countless illustrations that purported to depict slave auctions, Crow likely knew that most of those artists had never actually seen one. Artists, such as the one who created illustrations for Uncle Tom's Cabin and other books, typically depicted the theater of the auction itself. As writers described the scenes, they emphasized the market drama, the suspense of bidding, and the theater of going, going, gone of the final sale. Its frequent repetition as a visual and textual formula made the image of the slave auction expected and almost familiar, which paradoxically diminished both its horror and its impact. Part of what Crow observed closely is unexpected to modern eyes. Many comment that Crow and other artists must have altered the clothes that slaves were wearing in order to make the image more pal palatable. Quite the contrary. Slaves were commonly dressed for sale, and such expenditures were all part of, the, of increasing the profitability of slaves sold. In addition to feeding slaves well, traders usually dressed slaves in new clothing as a way of disguising their true histories. A client of Dickinson's in Richmond, for instance, sent him 31 slaves from Gloucester County and told him to 
Fix them up well as you can before the sale. As former slave Solomon Northup reported, we were then furnished with a new suit each. The men had hat, coat, shirt, pants, and shoes. The women, frocks of calico and handkerchiefs to bound about their heads. The uniformity of the slaves' clothing wiped away the many different life histories of the various slaves and made them seem to buyers just different options of the same product, varying by age, height, and skills, but obscuring their individual histories, experiences, and hardships. In Hector Davis's account books of enrichment, clothing made up the single largest item of expenses related to slaves. This might seem counterintuitive, but it must have worked because traders continued the expenses year after year. For example, in the week of 12 May, 1860, when Davis earned $48 in jail fees and $475 for commissions on sales, he spent $150 on clothing. In the first 10 months of 1860, he spent nearly $300 for shoes and nearly $1,500 for clothing. Cranston also depicted the women as being dressed for sale. Like many others, he seemed surprised by their neat dress. And Cranston draws attention to the women, not only by the compositional arrangement, but also by their vibrant clothes. According to his recollection, the room was dark and dingy. But the women were dressed in flaunting gay colors, the men in their best trim. William Chambers, another English visitor to Richmond, wrote that their appearance had little of the repulsiveness we apt to associate with the idea of slaves. Costuming was thus an essential part of the theater of the slave auction. Slaves were dressed as characters in a play and expected to act out their parts. Former slave Wallace Turnage, for example, described his principal job while a young slave in Richmond working for Hector Davis as taking people from the jail to the dressing room and from the dressing room to the auction room. That most likely meant that he took slaves from the jail to a clothing store before taking them to the sales room. Certain clothing retailers specialized in providing clothes for the trade. In Richmond, Louis B. Levy had a shop under the City Hotel on Wall Street in close proximity to the traders. Richmond-born sculptor Moses Ezekiel recalled in his memoirs how slaves were brought to his gran grandparents' store on 17th Street to be dressed for sale. Ezekiel described a store that surely closely resembled those next door on 17th Street and shown in this image. The front room was filled with clothing and was separated from the family sitting and dining rooms by a partition with a glass door. In the back room, there was what he described as a space under, st under the stair that was walled in and papered like the rest of the room. According to Ezekiel, it formed a sort of closet which was filled with ready-made dresses of all sizes to fit any Negro woman or girl. Ezekiel claimed every Negro who was brought to Richmond from the South to be sold at auction was, on the morning of the sale, brought to our house to be dressed. The men and boys remained in the store and were attended by my grandfather and his bookkeeper, and the women and girls came into the back room 
and were dressed by my old Mammy Mary, who was a stout mulatto woman and belonged to my grandparents. Ezekiel also recalled how slaves were not always dressed the same. He told the story of one day when black Moses, who worked for an unnamed dealer, brought slaves to the store and requested that six of the men and the boys be given suits, another eight be given shirts, socks, suspenders, and a handkerchief, and the last four be given only shirts and a handkerchief. The differences in clothing probably reflected both what the slave traders thought the slaves would bring on the market and what their owners were willing to spend in costuming them for the sale. Over the course of illustrating and painting the slave trade for nearly a decade, Crow had depicted several scenes associated with the slave trade, including both the auction and slaves waiting for sale. Cranston's painting seems to incorporate both of these moments and suggests that he knew Crow's images, which were widely circulated through their publication in the Illustrated London News and several exhibitions in London and elsewhere in the UK. Crow's final painting of his series, and the one that is best known today, is the image he exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1861. When it appeared on the walls of the Royal Academy, it broke ground in significant ways. It moved away from the theatricality and the caricatured shorthand that was more commonly used in the representation of people of African descent. Crow instead sought to convey the depth and complexity of the horrors of slavery by presenting an entirely different scene. Not the moment of the auction, by now so well rehearsed in the minds of viewers, but the moments before. And the decision might seem a relatively minor choice, but it had dramatic implications. The shift in timing alone forced viewers to consider the topic anew. Instead of drawing attention to the auctioneer and the buyers, Crow focused primarily on the enslaved. Significantly, he moved away from the characteristically crowded auction scene to the pre-auction inactivity, in which only a small number of participants were present. He moved from representing figures as stock types to creating images of individuals who possessed a depth of feeling and emotion rarely encountered in representations of persons of African descent in the 19th century. In Crow's painting, the viewer is forced to consider the slave trade not just in the abstract, but instead to recognize that it happened to individual mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, daughters and sons. Crow's painting, however, was the result of an evolution of his own thinking about race and slavery. His original sketch relied on figures who generally conform to racial stereotypes with exaggerated features. These had long been a staple of periodical and book illustration and were so common that they were hardly noticed by most viewers. When he walked into the sales room on Wall Street on March 3, 1853, he certainly had Uncle Tom's cabin in his mind. This is most evident in his treatment of the man on the right who, in the sketch, is treated as a racial caricature. With his exaggerated features and his look of pleasant complacency, the figure closely resembles the way Uncle Tom was presented in graphic illustrations. So closely linked is, a, is Crow's original sketch of the man to Billings drawing, 
entitled Little Eva, Reading the Bible to Uncle Tom in the Arbor, that it appears Billings' image must have been strongly oppressed upon the mind as he entered the Richmond sales room. There were quite striking similarities between the two images, including the pose, the clothing, and even the detail of the hat discarded on the ground. The man waiting to be sold in 1853 was Uncle Tom. The man in the 1861 painting was decidedly not Uncle Tom. The man in Crow's painting was described by a list of adjectives rarely encountered in Royal Academy reviews, sullenly resigned, according to one, and displaying suffused indignant scorn mingled with defiance, according to another. Crow accomplished this transformation from his original sketch by making a number of small but significant changes. Most obvious is that he eschewed the racial caricature of the earlier sketch, perhaps suggesting that he worked from a live model in his London studio. Crow shifted the man's bodily stance as well as the expression on his face. By taking off the jacket and the hat, the clothes that symbolized his status as chattel property in the slave trade, the man has demonstrated his unwillingness to comply with the usual costuming that was a central element of his commodification. Crow also made the man younger, and by taking off his coat revealed his powerful arms. The man was neither the supplicant and pleading slave who had dominated anti-slavery for decades, nor the gentle and faithful Uncle Tom accepting his fate with Christian resignation. Crow created an entirely new image of an American male slave. The crossed arms and clenched fists communicated a barely suppressed rage. These elements, combined with his attitude of suffused indignant scorn mingled with defiance, suggested a slave who could at any moment resist, run away, or rebel with force if necessary. Crow had distilled his understanding of slavery and the American war into this single moment. Just as the viewing public could not know the outcome of the war unfolding before them, the slaves in Crow's painting could not know what fate held in store for them. While this painting represented nine individuals, it also represented all slaves, each of whom had a price on his or her head and could be sold at any moment. In these rooms where husbands and wives parents and children were sold away from one another, Crow discovered a commercial space that encapsulated the horrors of the modern slave system, turning bodies into commodities to be bought and sold with no control over their fates. The sense of uncertainty and foreboding made Crow's image apt for the moment. The picture of a small group of enslaved men, women, and children asked the British public to consider the horrors of American slavery in the modern world. It also asked them to consider the cause of the US Civil War and by extension, Britain's proper response to it. It also has the power today to invite us to pause and consider the historical legacy of the trade to the past, present, and future of the city of Richmond. Thank you.
and I'm very happy to take questions, and I believe there are people with microphones who will be in the aisles. There's one here on the front row. Thank you very much. I'd like to know what were the conditions in the jails where the slaves were kept? Because it seems that it would make more economic sense to have them healthy and uh, you know not dying off. But if they were kept there for a long period of time, it would, of course, cost more money. Right. So jail fees were relatively cheap. They were about 25 cents a day. So if you could wait long enough for prices to rise, that 25 cents a day was a reasonable expenditure. Um, the jail conditions would, by modern standards, be considered horrific. But by those standards, um, they were very much concerned with keeping them healthy. The food rations were considerably better than what most slaves experienced on the plantation. And many slaves were held to be what they would have called at the time fattened up. Um, they rarely got much protein in their diets when they were on a plantation, but protein was considerably more available in the jails because it was important to make slaves look healthy. But they also did a lot of other things. They plucked gray hairs or they dyed hair. They put wax in scars to try to cover up old beatings. There was much that they did to try to transform the bodies of slaves um, into what was most likely to bring the highest price. You don't hear a lot about disease in the Richmond jails, but in the New Orleans jails, it was a, a, a horrible problem at, at all times. What happened to the slaves who were too old or too sick or too truculent to be sold? It's not clear in the records. Um, they just, none of the account books are clear enough on all of that. It could well be that um, a trader might not even accept such a slave for sale. One down here. Uh, I just wanted to tell you, this was the most informative and moving, very emotional presentation. Thank you very much. I wondered, by any chance, do you know, I've been very frustrated by Doug Wilder's moves and attempts to get the Slavery Museum away from Richmond, and uh, it's not, his attempts have not resulted in anything. Do you know, is there any chance we will be getting this museum back in Richmond or where things stand? Thank you. I'm afraid that question is well above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you and, and I too am very hopeful that one day the city of Richmond will have a museum dedicated to African American history. I think it's something the city vitally needs. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, I'm born and raised in Richmond, and uh, it's very so grateful to hear this. Um, my question is the prices of the slaves. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you know more? And how much would they be worth in today's money? And with the children cheaper or the yes, so the, the bucks yeah, more expensive. The, yeah, the price sheet that I had listed up um, was typical of many, and and slaves were divided into different categories, um, and they called them. Um, best men, number one men, number two men, and then children by height. And then women similarly were in different categories. And so there, were, there was a significant range of prices, and they certainly change over the course of the antebellum period. But in, say, 1853, when Crow was there, 
a number one or best male slave was probably selling for under $1,000, maybe $800. I have not done the price conversion to what that is in today's dollar, but there's a great website um, that you can find. You can type in, you know, Google sort of how much is that in today's money, and you can put in the year and an amount and get an estimate. You're welcome. Uh, you, you focused on uh, a few a few pictures. Mm -hmm. Can you can you tell us how much how much art uh, overseas or within this country was there? It, it seemed like you focused on some very inter interesting pictures, but right. uh, just on a on on a very few pictures. How how much art was there? Right. So there are considering how much abolitionists talked about this subject, there are relatively few images. Almost every single image there is, is in my book. Um, so that Crow created three paintings total, one of which is lost. Um, the other painting is owned by the Chicago Historical Society and I did not show it here. There are two Cranston paintings, the one that the Virginia Historical Society owns, and another in a private collection. The vast majority of the imagery was published in either books or abolitionist pamphlets or in periodical materials. But even if you add all that up, we're still in the dozens. There aren't that many. And what's so remarkable about the Crow and the Cranstone images is they were made by people who witnessed the event rather than just by artists who read about it and then tried to put it into imagery. There, in Illustrated London News, Crow publishes a number of images. And then as the war breaks out in 1861, there are a number of um, illustrators who come over here from British periodicals and create images. And again, most of those are in my book. But it's not many. Um, it was, you know, the 19th century art world was very reluctant to depict things about horrific subjects. And so there's a real hesitancy. And one of the other things that's really remarkable about this story is most of the images are created by British artists, and the few American images there, that there are are almost all by Northern artists. Thank you so much for bringing this to our attention and appreciate so much the work that you have done. I'd like to also mention the work that we're doing at the Virginia Historical Society with the new project called Unknown No Longer, a slave name database, where we're looking at our records and extracting names of enslaved people. Um, and this is a resource that marries well with the work that you are doing. Thank you so much. Very much. Yes, what was the difference between the light-skinned and dark-skinned women? You did make a reference to that. Yes, so one of the things that um, is, if this could be any more horrific, one of the things that um, is even more uh, terrifying about the slave trade is that it is very clear that young, light-skinned women were part of what dealers and buyers referred to as the fancy trade. And those were young, beautiful women who were basically being sold to be concubines for some planter. Um, and so their price was actually the highest um, of any slaves, more valued um, than your strongest field hand or your best trained cook. 
Um, the trade in Richmond is not as specifically about fancy girls because most of the trade in Richmond, you have slaves being sold who are mostly being purchased by traders to be put either on a railroad or a ship or marched to the southwest where they would end up in sales rooms in Natchez and New Orleans more than anywhere else. Those are the two largest markets down there. And it's there that they're then often auctioned off as fancy girls. Thank you very much. Thank you.